This week's episode is brought to you by A Night at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Join Bob Gurr, Keith Gluck, and myself for a night of fun and awesome presentations. Learn about Westcott, the Anaheim Park that never was, and then listen to Bob tell us some great stories about his days at WED. For tickets and more information, go to www.thedisneyproject.com. Communicore Welcome to Season 3! Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And this week, we're going back to the World's Fair again. We got a, a lot of really great uh, comments and emails mm-hmm. from people who enjoyed that uh, that first part that we tackled. Yeah, and we're hoping it continues, that they like the second part. Yes, I hope they like the second part, too. I hope they like all the parts, honestly, even the parts oh, we haven't done yet. That's true. That's true. Sort of pre-like them? Yes. Yeah, that, that's like what... Pre-order? Yeah, Facebook, but... yeah f- no, Facebook is going to start that now. Oh, the, pre- you can, the pre-liking? You can pre-like people's posts. Oh, okay. Before so, they're, even, they're even thought of? Exactly. It's like, I think Jeff's going to post it. I'm going to go ahead and pre-like his post. Just whatever it is, even if it says George sure. is, is a big uh, dummy? Yeah, but that's still supporting you. That's true. That's you know, true. that's important. It's really nice think. that you're supporting me making fun of you. Of course. Of course. That's what we do here at That's, what, that's what friends are for. Supporting yeah. each other when we're making fun of each other. It can only get worse. It's the 50th anniversary of the 64 World's Fair and the 49th anniversary of the 1965 fart! <laughs> now, because the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair was so important to Walt Disney, Disneyland, and the development of Walt Disney World, you know, it really holds a very special place in our hearts. Now, the World's Fair advanced the state of audio animatronics and proved that Disneyland-style attractions could work on the East Coast and, and help Disney fund major attractions for Disneyland. Now, we all know that it's a small world, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, uh, the Carousel of Progress, and the Grand Canyon uh, Primeval World diorama of the Disneyland Railroad were all thanks to the fair. So thanks, fair. <laughs> it's, it's a big shout out to the fair. It is a huge shout out to the fair. <laughs> okay, so as, as we mentioned before, this is the 50th anniversary of the 1964 fair. So we wanted to take some time during season three of Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, to investigate the fair's history and its long running influence. The 60 fair, uh, 64 fair, not 60 fair, that's how we'll change the name. It really <laughs> rings fondly in most people's minds. You know, like the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair, there's a lot of nostalgia for the forward-thinking fair, but it wasn't always like that. And if you check out the fantastic book Tomorrowland by Joseph Torella, you get some amazing insight into the creation of the fair by the master builder, Robert Moses. Now, Robert Moses, he'd been uh, work. He worked on the planning for the 1939-1940 uh, World's Fair uh, as the New York Parks Commissioner, and the the 1939 fair was held at Flushing Meadows, the same location that the 1964-65 World's Fair was held, and it would influence the 64 fair in a lot of ways. You know, and although the Chicago Fair in 1933 was the first fair to uh, last two seasons, um, and it was held over for that second season because it was so popular, the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair was the first expo that was semi-planned, actually, for two seasons. Um, and this would be important to Moses and would not only influence the 1964-65 World's Fair, 
but also cause issues for Moses and the BIE, or the Bureau of International Expositions, uh, that was the organization that sanctioned the fairs. So the BIE was set up in 1928 with the following goals. To oversee the calendar, the bidding, the selection, and the organization of world expositions, and to establish a regulatory framework under which expo organizers and participants may work together under the best conditions. And that just sounds so nice. Um, and as a side note, the United States was a member of the BIE until 2001 because Congress had not paid membership dues in over two years. And even another side note, we got a lot of sides here. At the time of the New York World's Fair, the U.S. was planning on joining, but it had not. So the regulations from the BIE would cause some problems for the World's Fair and for Moses in particular. Now, we should probably step back and uh, you know, talk about the origin of the 64 or 65 fair. Now, uh, real estate lawyer Robert Koppel, he remarked that the idea of something that would unite the people of the world occurred to him one evening at dinner with his wife and his two daughters uh, back in 1958. And he said that his two daughters talked about how the world was kind of filled with hate around that time. And Koppel, he, he wanted to share with them and the people of New York that people around the world were basically the same. So Koppel met with the associates at the New York University Club and convinced them that a World's Fair was kind of needed to educate the children. And many of Koppel's well-connected friends had fond remembrances of the 3940 World's Fair, uh, which was barely 20 years uh, in, in the past, so it wasn't all that long ago. Yeah, and Koppel created a World's Fair nonprofit corporation to land the fair, so to speak. And according to the BIE's bylaws, a country could only host a fair once every 10 years, and the exhibits had to be spaced apart. Seattle, Washington was petitioning the BIE for the 1962 Century 21 Exposition. Uh, and Disney, actually, Walt Disney had sent many Imagineers to Seattle during the fair to check out different things. Also, Toronto, Vienna, Moscow, L.A., and Washington, D.C. wanted to hold exhibitions in the mid-60s. So clearly the group had its work cut out for it. And back in the 1930s, Moses offered the Flushing Meadows area as a site for the fair. And he had designs on creating a larger and more popular park than Central Park. And when Moses was, was asked about the potential for another fair, his thoughts turned toward Flushing Meadows again with the hopes of finally finishing the park with the World's Fair buildings. Now, Moses agreed to rent the Flushing Meadows Park to the nonprofit for a dollar per year. And shortly after Moses' involvement with the nonprofit corporation, um, he would be asked to head it. Um, and it was that point that Koppel realized that he'd been outed. Uh, Moses was in and Koppel was out. So Moses, at that point, he dedicated everything to the fair. He actually flew to Paris to speak with the BIE, but uh, not before doing some homework on them. He actually had lawyers look over the, the BIE's treaty. And uh, oddly enough, at the time, the U.S. wasn't part of the European-led BIE treaty. And uh, Moses found that he could continue with his free enterprise expo exposition. Um, but back in the 1930s, Governor Whalen, who was the president of the 3940 Fair Corporation, he actually promised the BIE that he would fulfill many of the requirements, but not the one that uh, limited them to a six-month run. Um, but he disregarded the treaty during the fair itself. And Moses, uh, it was pretty much the same way. He didn't want anyone telling him what to do and what not to do, so he was going to do whatever he wanted to do. Which is pretty much how he ran the Parks Commission. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, inventing or creating all those highways so okay well in addition to flouting several of the bie rules moses also chose to charge foreign countries rent while allowing the u.s pavilion and attending states to not pay rent and officially the bie boycotted the new york fair and sanctioning they ended up sanctioning the seattle fair 
many of the European nations sided with the BIE so as you know, not to jeopardize their potential fair sites in the future. Uh, Moses then spent time persuading many African, Asian, and South American countries to host pavilions. And many of these countries would be exhibiting at a World's Fair for the very first time. Now, Moses also took advantage of the golden era, so to speak, of advancement and innovation that American businesses were experiencing to help fund the pavilions. Now, major American companies were thrilled to show off their latest inventions and innovations in order to market and profit and promote themselves. Um, so they, they had pavilions sponsored by Ford, GM, IBM, and others. They would, they would really be the hallmarks of the fair and probably be the most popular pavilions at the fair. But that will be the subject for a future World's Fair segment. Ooh, that was almost a cliffhanger. It is a cliffhanger. If we had said, like, maybe somebody had been stabbed in the back, and well, then... Well, yeah, okay, I guess Koppel had been stabbed in the back, yeah, he and was. other people so had been stabbed in the back. Maybe so. somebody else was stabbed in the back. Yeah, we, we need to have a dun-dun-dun. Figuratively, though, guys, not literally. That's just mean. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Designing Disney, Imagineering in the Art of Show by John Hench. So this review is on the first edition of the book that was released in 2003 with the white and purple cover, not the 2009 with the orange cover. I'm colorblind, but, so they both look the same. So it would matter, yes. Yeah. They're really, really similar. There were some changes made editorially after Hench's passing, but I won't get into that now. Okay, so this book is divided into four main areas. The, the titles are The Art of Show, The Art of Visual Storytelling, The Art of Character, and The Art of Color. And Hench really does an amazing job of breaking down these areas by uh, providing concrete examples through artwork, concept art, photographs, stories, and a lot of personal recollections. Um, one of the, and, and I use the word amazing a lot, but one of the amazing concept art shots is the proposed Mickey Mouse Hotel. And Hench briefly discusses using the forms and symbols that are immediately recognizable you know, to us, you know, the, the, the three circles. Uh, of course, the Mickey Mouse Hotel was never built, but the original idea was for it to be on the monorail line between the Grand Floridian and the Magic Kingdom. And Hench was also one of the concept artists for the Enchanted Tiki Room at Disneyland. And you can see from the pictures in the book that he was very much into color and the moods and feelings associated with color. Uh, he would use color to help set the scene and invite guests further into the attraction or, or simply to set a mood. And Hench refers to the concept art as uh, enhanced reality. He also talks about the original iteration of the Enchanted Tiki Room. Walt wanted it to be a dining establishment with a dinner show. And once they started planning and designing, they realized that it would limit the audience capacity way too much. So Hench added the center fountain and created a theater in the round. And of course, the rest is history. Now, the most stunning part of the book to me is the art of color section. And actually, I, I think it's one of the most interesting and eye-opening parts of the book. Not only does Hench discuss the different properties of color as they would appear in the different theme park locales, but he tackles how the same color will have drastically different effects depending on the sunlight. Uh, Disneyland Paris, he mentions, has a colder sun, while Walt Disney World has a much brighter sun. Therefore, the, the color palette has to be very carefully chosen. So, in planning the Polynesian Hotel, they wanted to make sure that all of the details and the warmth were accessible in the day or the evening. And when I was when I was started thinking about this book review, I really wanted to start with the following quote. Uh, this is directly from Hench's book. When I am asked, what is your greatest achievement, I answer, Disneyland is our greatest achievement. 
Disneyland was first and set the pattern for others to follow. Disneyland has been an example of for many enterprises in the entertainment industry, and its design principles have been embraced by other industries as well. The concept of theme and environments, places designed so that every element contributes to telling a story, was developed and popularized by Walt Disney. Its influence has been extraordinarily widespread and can be seen today in many aspects of our daily experience, in shops and shopping malls, hotels, restaurants, museums, airports, offices, even people's homes. So after reading that quote, then I started flipping through the book itself and realized that there was simply too much inside the pages to leave it with just that quote. Um, I, I really hope to whet your appetite with the, the minor parts of the work that I talked about. It's, it's not a full review. It's just, you know, I like to think of it as just one friend telling another friend, or a lot of friends, about an incredible read. And I urge you to get a copy of this book. You will never look at Disney the same way after devouring it or reading it, really, or devouring it's a better term. And this book is called Designing Disney Imagineering and the Art of the Show by John Hench. What we liked, what we didn't like, he's in the booze, 60-second review. Okay, so Disney has just released the Diamond Edition of The Jungle Book on Blu-ray, and we got our hands on our review copies and, and watched them this weekend, and uh, I have to admit, I thought it looked really, really good. The transfer was well done, and it sounded great. I, you know? I agree. You know, I thought it was kind of funny, I you know, when we looked at um, Sword on the Stone uh, a, a little while ago, that movie came out seven, eight years before The Jungle Book, and the transfer on it uh, just looked horrific. It, it just did, mm-hmm. did not look well. But this film came out in uh, 1967, and I was really impressed by by the Blu-ray transfer. I thought it looked wonderful. Um, the, the colors popped in all the right places. The jungle looked lush and green, and I don't know. I, I really thought the Wanna Be Like You sequence with uh, King Louis, um, to me, that oh. looked the best. Yeah, that looked really good. Uh, yeah, maybe that, that just really, really my good. favorite part of the movie. I don't know. But <laughs> well, no, yeah, when you great. mentioned when yeah when you mentioned the backgrounds, I was like, yeah, it really was lush, but it also the background was a character. Yes, with the absolutely. the the, the flora and the fauna, the mist floating around, um, the tall grasses and everything like that. It just, it really jumped and it really moved. And just like we mentioned, it sounded great because you've got all those great songs, many of which penned by the Sherman Brothers. Which was absolutely spectacular. I always forget that the Bear Necessities was not actually penned exactly. by the Sherman Brothers. Yeah, when uh, something you learn in one of the um, uh, behind-the-scenes featurettes, which we'll talk to talk about in a second, the uh, another uh, composer, and I'm I'm kicking myself for not knowing his name. I think Gary Tice, but that might be wrong. He had written a whole score of uh, songs, and Walt was like, "Oh, these are too dark. I don't want to use them," and brought in the Sherman Brothers. And the only one they kept, of course, was. The uh, "Wanna Be Like You," which I, I I enjoy that song, which is still a great song Quite in and of itself. So, but as I mentioned, there are extras. Yeah, there are bonuses. And I was good. surprised, <laughs> considering the last couple we looked at, there it was like the bare minimum of effort they put into it. But this one, they actually had a bunch of really cool stuff on it. I thought at least. Yeah. Um, what I mean, they also had all the stuff from the original DVD, which was good mm-hmm. that they included that. It was all that was still standard definition, which I'm okay with. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, the first new feature they had was the you know it was a feature with diane disney miller uh richard sherman and floyd norman and they were all at the walt disney film museum talking about the the film and uh, it was really interesting to hear their their insights into it um sure i mean because you know they talk of course about the film uh, making the music 
And then Floyd jumped in talking about how the animation was done and the story, how Walt jumped back in, you know, with the last films after his disappointment with the Sword in the Stone. Uh, not Sword in the Stone. Yeah, Sword in the Stone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> after he was disappointed with how that turned out, so he decided to jump back in with the Jungle Book. And then, of course, you get some of Diane's fonder memories of her father and it, uh, his thoughts with it. Yeah, and, I th- you know, it's interesting because this is really the last uh, Walt Disney animated feature that he... Mm-hmm produced he had his hands all over and you can kind of tell his, his fingerprints are on it and you know the mm-hmm. difference after he passed away so it was really cool to get their their insights into it um mm-hmm. they also had that alternate ending that that was just quote unquote recently discovered um <laughs> and i thought it was a chore to sit through because i thought it was horrific i thought it was yeah. not good did you watch that part did you enjoy yeah that? yeah yeah i watched the whole thing and it, it just it took it in a completely different direction and then if you if you go back into the uh, previous Blu-rays, uh, uh, the the DVD special editions, you find out there was that was one of the original stories that Bill Pete had done before he was uh, let go of the project and actually left Disney. He took a bunch of the photo stats home with him mm-hmm. of the storyboards, and they were lost until they found him in his personal collection. So it was a much darker film when Bill Pete was in charge yeah, of. Yeah, that ending was pretty dark, and I did not yeah. like it at all. Yeah, which is supposed to follow closer to the book, and it was a weird. You know, Mowgli living with the family and then occasionally going back to the jungle. Yeah, it, it just it didn't was, seem right with the rest of the tone of the film. Yeah, yeah. It, just, it was kind of odd. It was it kind of odd. It out an extra 20, 20 minutes, it would have been or so. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, it would have been much, much longer. Yeah. But you, but we also had that great segment, the um, at Disney animation segment, like yes. we had in the, the previous release where they talked about with The Little Mermaid with um, women animators. And this one was about the Spark annual conferences that they do where basically – Anybody in the animation studio that has an idea can present it at the Spark conference, and it could lead to developments in animation. Yeah. Like uh, the great short Paper Man that saw the animation was brought out, and they talk a little bit about uh, some of the new animation they did for Frozen. Yeah, it was cool. Actually, the thing that they were showing, the, the wand to make mm-hmm. this note, everything, they actually had that on display at D23 for people to play with. So when, when I saw it on the future, like, hey, I remember playing with a thing. That's kind of cool. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> um the, the my my favorite feature by far though was the look at uh, everyone's favorite full day park, uh, the Animal Kingdom. <laughs> and you know, even though the two kids from Dog with a Blog were hosting it, I still learned some things from it. Um, I enjoyed it. I know I know you watched it and you texted me and you said I'm, it just makes me want to visit the park even less now. But I I thought there were some cool things in it. I I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. It fit with the message of the Jungle Book and you know, animal conservation and everything. And sure. I I enjoyed it. I thought it was good stuff. Yeah, there was just no reason to have um, the two characters from Dog with the Blog um, there. I mean, no, it was absolutely like, not. Who's who's our hottest teen stars of the day? Let's put them at the Animal Kingdom and do something. I, you know, it's that corporate synergy. But yeah, it was I, fun. I have was... to say, when the one kid was in the lion uh, thing, or the tiger den, and uh, oh, yeah. and they're like, oh, when are they going to release the tigers? And I'm like, please do it when he's still in there. <laughs> that would make for such an interesting special feature on this disc. It would have been fantastic. But it was fun to see that. and It was cool. You know, I did learn a lot from it, too. Yeah, I like it when they bring, even though we know it's an advertisement, I like it when they try to tie the parks or something with the theme parks into the Blu-ray release. You can advertise um, Animal Kingdom to me anytime you want, <laughs> Disney. Keep, keep bringing it. I don't mind. You know, I was trying to come up with something like it was a, it was a 
half of a normal length. No, but it was it was like it. 25 minutes. It was pretty long. It was. It was. It was there was long. some humor in it. It's just that little girl was just driving me nuts. I was like, I can't stand her voice. It's, it's the it's the Disney Channel uh, happiness mentality. I, I think legitimately she was excited, but I mean, <laughs> it was that Disney Channel vibe to it. I just, I can't stand that stuff now. But uh, overall, I, I mean, <laughs> to get back kind of on topic, the, 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 the disc is great. I think it looks great. I think it's definitely worth mm-hmm. the money uh, to purchase it. Sounds great, and it's it's got bariochi too. Yes, bari. How can I forget bariochi? I forgot uh, about that. We the bariochi, so we think this is a, another purchase. Even if you've already got it on DVD, this is actually worth upgrading to the Blu-ray for the sound and the picture alone. Absolutely, that, so. absolutely. So yeah, go go pick it up. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Do you want to check out some of the original attractions from the 1964-65 World's Fair? Sure, you can. You, you do? Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, I thought we were supposed to add that in. It was kind of like a rhetorical question, but I mean, it works that, that you answer okay. anyway. Anyway, okay. I mean, you, George, you can go visit a Disney <laughs> theme park if you want, and you can obviously see it's a small world or the Carousel of Progress, but did you know you can also see another attraction somewhere else? And in fact, it was one that I enjoyed myself for many years when I was living in New Jersey. Hmm. Now, originally built for the 64-65 New York World's Fair, the Swiss Skyway transported millions of guests between the Switzerland and the Korean pavilions during the two-year run of the fair itself. And at the end of the fair, the ride structures and the cars were put into storage, until 1974, when they were purchased by Great Adventure. And though the towers they travel between now are slightly modified, uh, they were slightly redone during installation to make them a little more sturdy, uh, the ride is pretty much exactly the same as it was from the World's Fair. So the next time you visit Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey, be sure to take a ride on that piece of World's Fair history, because I know I have, and I miss it. That's pretty cool. I like it. What other pieces of the World's Fair are still out there? I don't know. Mm. That's a good question. I actually, I didn't know that that Skyride was from the World's Fair until about two weeks ago. Um, So I had been riding it my entire life and not knowing it was from the World's Fair. So I'm sure there are plenty of other things out there that are from the fair we don't know about. (laughs) Well, we know plenty of the highways were constructed by uh, Robert Moses to take people to the fair specifically. That's true. I mean, that kind of counts. Not nearly as fun as a Skyride, though. No, no. Especially in traffic. (laughs) That's just me, though. That's it. So, yeah. all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching and listening to us again. Yeah, be sure to leave us a rating and give us a comment on the iTunes. If we love those. And always email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On both of them, I'm at Imaginerding and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And be sure to give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. We, we need more voicemails, guys. We only got yes, like 20 do. since the last show. <laughs> we need more. I like listening to voicemails. Yes. Uh, and uh, don't forget, you can still download your copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical, at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby. And you will enjoy it and love it. Yes, And be you singing will. the songs forever and ever and ever and ever so well for jeff heimbuck i'm george taylor and for george taylor i'm jeff heimbuck thanks so much for listening guys and gals we'll see you next time on communicore weekly the greatest online show indian rug <laughs>